Father, uh, last week as we finished in Genesis 32, and uh, Lord, we saw that you gave Jacob a new identity. Uh, you called him Israel, a prince with you, Lord, a man who walks with you. Uh, Father, uh, as we're going to see today, uh, Jacob, that, that didn't end his troubles. It only began his identity crisis, Lord. He struggled the rest of his life with just who he was. And, Lord, that's the same struggle that all of us have. Uh, we, 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 we've been given this great identity in, in Christ, and yet, Lord, we, we identify ourselves in so many other ways. And, and it causes us all sorts of struggles in life. And that's, that's what we want to look at today as we, as we begin to, to follow Jacob after he has this new identity as Israel. And, Lord, we see uh, this, that we have the same kind of struggles that he has. And, Lord, uh, the victories come when, when we truly identify in you. So, so help us to, to learn these lessons today, Lord. Help us to think through just, just who we are in Christ. Help us to, to, to make that a priority, to find our identity in you. And, Lord, that's where the victory comes, and that's what we all want. We want to live victorious Christian lives, Lord, and that's the only way we're going to do it if we truly understand who we are in Christ. And so, Lord, I just ask that you, you show us that and you bless our study today. And, Lord, we can only be blessed through your spirit as you open your word uh, in our hearts and in our ears, Lord. And I just ask for a, a special blessing today. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> you can, uh, if you looked at the bulletins, you saw the title of the message today is Identity Crisis. That's a phrase that was coined back in uh, the mid-1900s by a uh, self-taught famous psychologist named Eric Erickson. You might have heard of who, uh, the man I'm talking about. And he based that, his doctrine of an identity crisis on his own personal experience. Uh, his mother was a Jew, and uh, uh, he didn't know his father. He was born out of wedlock. But more than likely, his father wasn't a Jew. And so when he went to, to Jewish temple school as a young child, uh, he, they, the kids made fun of him because he had blue eyes and blonde hair and, and these Nordic looks, and so uh, he didn't look like a Jew, and so they, they, they really ostracized him when he was in school there. So his mother took him out of uh, Jewish temple school and put him into public school, and there he was made fun of because he was a Jew. Uh, and he wasn't like all the other kids, and he didn't look like a Jew. And so he struggled his whole life with this, this identity crisis that he had. And, and uh, uh, so uh, he based that term identity crisis on the role confusion he had in life, and he felt that everybody, in the, especially in the United States of America, struggles with their identity, that, that people don't really know who they are. And so... When they're faced with some traumatic event, then uh, they're uh, faced with uh, some sort of identity crisis. Now, I'm not big on secular psychology. Uh, you probably have figured that out if you've been here a while. I think it's caused a lot more confusion than, it, than it's, than it's uh, solved uh, problems, so, so uh, I, I'm not big on it, but, but I think Erickson actually was on to something here, because I do believe that most people do struggle with their identities, and it does cause us a lot of problems. I think depression is caused a lot of times because of our identity crises, uh, bipolar disorders, schizophrenia. Uh, all of these have something to do with people not being able to find out what their identity is. I mean, in today's world, people even struggle to figure out whether they're male or female. But, but, but I'm not here to talk today about secular psychology. Uh, what I want to talk about is the identity crisis that, that uh, is plaguing the children of God. And I believe probably everybody in this room who calls themselves a Christian in some way struggles with some sort of identity crisis. And nowhere in the Bible do we get a better picture or a clearer picture of this identity crisis than we do in this fellow, Jacob, uh, because Jacob was a child of God who struggled uh, with his identity his entire life. He, he didn't really understand who he was 
in Christ. I mean, even before he was called Israel, God had given him an identity. He actually was given an identity at his birth because, remember, at his birth it was prophesied that the older will serve the younger. And so what that meant was that Jacob was going to inherit the promises of Abraham. So he was a very important person. That was really his identity. He was identified at birth as a child of God. The Bible says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So Jacob was elected before the foundation of the world to be a child of God. And just last week we saw that after he wrestled with God, God gave him a very specific identity. What was that identity? He called him Israel, prince with God, a man who walked with God, a man who had prevailed with God. And, and, and so I mean, he, he wrestled with God and he received a blessing, and I don't know if that was the blessing he was looking for. I don't think it was, but God gave him a blessing, and that blessing was he gave him a new character and a new name, and his name was Israel. But his identity crisis didn't end when God named him Israel. Actually, it only just began. That's when he really began to struggle with his identity to try to figure out just who he was. And for the rest of his life, we're going to see this uh, throughout the rest of Genesis and, and all of the other references to Jacob, the rest of his life, Jacob is going to be either called Israel or he's going to be called Jacob. He, when he acts like Jacob and he faces his, his, his dilemmas as Jacob, as a wheeler dealer and a schemer, he's going to be called Jacob. When he faces his, his, his dilemmas, his... his uh, 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 trouble, when he faces it as Israel, he's, as a prince with God, he's going to be called Israel. And we're gonna, but we're going to see this struggle that he's going to have throughout his life. And so uh, 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 you would think that, that uh, as soon as he had wrestled with God and God had called him Israel, that, that he, would, he would be through with his identity struggle, struggle but actually it only just began. Now, I think Jacob, when he wrestled with God and God said, look, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to call you. You're hanging on for a blessing. Here's your blessing. You're going to be Israel. I think Jacob, he certainly liked that name, but that wasn't the reason he was wrestling with God, was it? Why was he wrestling with God? Because Esau was coming with 400 soldiers and his life was being threatened and he was hanging on to God for dear life. So, yeah, that's nice, Lord, that you called me Israel, prince with God, but really what I'm here for is to get you to save my life. But no sooner did that wrestling match end than where, where was God? God disappeared out of his sight. And so right away, Jacob's going to be faced with this identity crisis. How am I going to face my brother now? My brother's coming, and in Jacob's mind, I think he thinks he's, Esau's coming to kill him. And so he's got an identity crisis, and he's got to figure out, how am I going to do this? I mean, where's the angel of the Lord? Because here's Jacob. Jacob was a wheeler dealer, a schemer. How had he always operated? He had always operated by sight. And now God says, you're going to be Israel. You're going to walk with me. Now, what did that mean? That meant that, that he was going to be protected by God. But you're going to have to believe that you're going to be protected. You're going to have to believe that I'm going to work things out for your good. You're going to have to believe that. And so now you're going to have to walk by faith, and you're not going to walk anymore. You don't need to walk anymore by sight. But that's going to be hard for Jacob because Jacob had spent his whole life uh, as Jacob, a wheeler, dealer, and a schemer. And, and so he's going to struggle over and over again with this identity crisis that, that uh, he now faces as as being Jacob and also being Israel. And we'll see that in, in today's lesson. So if you will, go with me to chapter 33. And let's pick up in, in verse number 1. Chapter 33, uh, verse number 1. He says, now, Jacob lifted up his eyes. Here's Jacob. He's wrestled with God all night. He's prevailed. He's won the wrestling match with God. God's named him Israel. Prince with God. But no sooner does he finish that wrestling match, God disappears out of his arms, and he's left alone. And he lifts up his eyes. And he lifts up his eyes, and he doesn't see God. Who does he see? He sees his trouble coming his way. 
I've got to tell you what, there's a big lesson right there in the first part of that verse. Because that's the way God often operates in our own lives. I mean, he, we, he, we face some type of crisis and then God shows up. We know that God is with us. And he tells us, he tells us either through his spirit, through, through, through a word of prophecy, through a word of wisdom. Somehow God speaks to us and he says, look, I'm with you in this trial. But the trial doesn't go away. He doesn't come and say, I'm taking the trial away. He just tells you, I'm with you in this trial. I remember years ago when I had a really severe strep infection that almost killed me. I was, I, was, I, I, I was getting ready to go in the pulpit one day, and my teeth were rattling. I think I've shared this with you a long time ago, but I, you know, I, I could barely breathe. I was running 104 temperature. And, and as soon as I got ready to preach, a buddy of mine who could preach really well came over to me and said, look, you want me, I'll preach the sermon. He could see me just having chills and shaking. And he said, you want me to go and preach for you? Uh, and I said, no, I'm going to try to do it. Well, as soon as I got up out of my chair and walked to the pulpit, the fever went away, the chills went away, my teeth started rattling. And I, I, mean, I was so excited. I was healed. I was healed and God was present. That's, that's what excited me. God had done that for me. I finished the sermon, said amen, did the invitation. We did invitations back in the Baptist church. I did the invitation, and the fever came back, and the chills, and the strip was still there. See, the problem was still there. I lifted up my eyes, and the problem was still there, but this time I knew that the Lord was with me in that problem. And that's what Jacob should have known at this point, because he, he, he lifts up his eyes. It says, now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and what's happening? There is Esau coming with, and with him 400 men. 400 warriors. Now, just look at that picture. Here is Jacob. He's got his, his 11 little boys, his two wives, his two handmaids. He's got some servants and some male servants and lots of cattle. But that's it. And here comes this mighty man of war with 400 warriors. I mean, that's a, that's, for Jacob, that's not a very pretty picture. I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's really kind of sad. So right away, he's facing an identity crisis. How am I going to handle this? I'm going to tell you what Jacob would have done in the old days. He would have cut and run and said, everybody, everybody in for himself. Scatter. You know, run for your life. Here comes Esau. But, but he's seen the Lord, and he's wrestled with the Lord, and so we're going to get kind of a mixed bag of tricks here. He's going to kind of handle this as Jacob, and he's also going to kind of handle it as Israel. Uh, it, 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 look at what happens. He said he lifted his eyes, and, and, with, and Esau was coming, and with him 400 men. And so what, here, here he's going to act like Jacob. Watch what he does. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. Every, every mother took their children. Now watch the order he puts them in. And he put the maidservants and their children in the front. They're going to die first in his mind. Then, then he put uh, Leah and her children next. They're going to die second. Now here's where he's being Israel. He's going to be out in front himself. That's being Israel. But he's Jacob. He's still trying to scheme here. And then he puts Rachel, who he loved the most, and Joseph, and he puts them at the very back. Right away, we see this favoritism towards Joseph. I mean, Joseph is going to be, he's not going to live long, but he's going to be the last to kill, be killed. That's the kind of way he's thinking. Or maybe they can, maybe as they're killing the others, they can cut and run. So, he, so they're getting the, the most time out of this. Now, that's really a bad plan, isn't it? That really sounds like a wheeler dealer, like a schemer, doesn't it? So who's Jacob being here? No doubt he's being Jacob. But watch now, now he be, becomes Israel in verse number three. Then he crosses over all by himself. He crosses over the Jabbok and, and, and all by himself, the, this brook, he crosses over before them. Man, he's being Israel. But now he goes back to being Jacob because He's the prince with God. Esau's not the prince with God. Esau should be bowing before Jacob. So Jacob runs out to him, and he's thinking, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show him how much I love him and, all the, and how much I'm in servitude to him. He goes out, and he bows seven times, just like you would bow before a king. And he, as he's walking out towards him, he's bowing the whole way. And so he says, and then he crossed over before him, and he bowed uh, himself to the ground seven times. 
until he came near his brother. But now he's acting like Israel. He, he doesn't run. He's facing his brother. That's a really took a lot of courage because, again, in his mind, he thinks his brother's going to kill him. And, 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 and what happens next? What happens next is nothing short of a miracle of God. I mean, what happens next is every bit as much of a miracle as when Jacob saw Jacob's ladder at Bethel when he saw it coming down from heaven and he saw the angels ascending and descending on that ladder. It's every bit as much of a miracle as when, when uh, the Lord took those thoroughbred sheep and when they bred, they bred spotted sheep and brown sheep and Jacob became a rich man. It's every bit as much of a miracle as when Laban was coming after Jacob to, to do harm to Jacob and God appeared to Laban in a dream and said, you better not even speak a bad word to him. I mean, it, 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 this is every bit as much of a miracle as when Jacob wrestled with none other than God himself. Well, it's a miracle of a changed heart. Let me tell you what. I don't know what you're facing in life but, or who you're facing in life, that's causing you trouble, God can change their heart. God can change their heart. I mean, he can totally reverse their attitude towards you. And that's what he's going to do here with Esau. I have no doubt that Esau, when he set out, he was setting out to do Jacob harm. But God's going to change his heart. He's going to see his brother, and God's going to change his heart. There is such a thing as a miracle of a changed heart. The Bible tells us in Proverbs that, that the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord to do what the Lord wants that him to do. That's, I, I see that in the President of the United States right now, doing all of these things that are in favor of Israel and in favor of, 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 of Christianity. I mean, he's not, I don't believe he's a Christian. Some people say he's become a Christian since he's been in office. I don't know about that, but... But, but he is certainly do things, doing things that are in our favor and in the favor of Israel. And God has changed his heart uh, and is moving his heart to, to protect us and to help Israel, at least for now. And God will protect him because he's doing that. So, so uh, uh, God changes hearts. And so uh, here he goes. He goes out to meet uh, Israel. I mean, he goes, Israel goes out to meet Esau, and, and we see a changed heart. I remember years ago, before I was saved, I was in deep trouble legally and financially. The IRS had seized my records, and word got back to me that they were investigating me for criminal wrongdoing. Well, after I got saved, I remember one day, Eli was just a baby. He was there when it happened. He doesn't remember it, but he was just a little baby. And, and I remember one day praying. I said, Lord, just bring this all to a head. If I've got to go to jail, then I've got to pay creditors. Whatever i got to do, just bring it all to a head. And let's get it on, whatever it is. Let's, don't, don't delay it. No sooner did I pray that, the doorbell rang. And I went to the door, and there was a man in a suit. And I opened the door and asked him who he was, and he showed me his badge. And he was an IRS special agent. And I remember saying, Lord, when I said let's get it on, I didn't mean right now. And... The old George, what I wanted to do was just slam the door and run with Eli out the back door. We didn't have a back door. I would have had to kick the window out, but somehow get out of there really quick or tell the guy, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to have to get my lawyer, uh, and we'll talk with my lawyer present. And, but, but I remember that I had prayed that, and I saw that clearly as an answer to my prayer. So I invited the man in. Now, I'd been a CPA earlier in my life, and I dealt quite often with IRS agents. Not quite often, but I dealt several times with IRS agents. And that's not, that's not always a pleasant experience. Uh, uh, but this guy, 
was especially nice. Really nice. I mean, I could almost see the face of God in this man. He was so nice to me. And he immediately told me, he said, you owe us several hundred thousand dollars plus interest and penalties. He said, but we've decided not to prosecute you. And I remember I wanted to fall on his neck and give him a big kiss, just like Jacob did Esau. That's what I wanted to do. I couldn't believe that they weren't going to prosecute me. And I remember just lifting my head up to the Lord and thanking the Lord. And we sat there, and he looked at me holding that little poor little baby and looked at the apartment we were living in, wasn't anything fancy. And, and so he said, well, let's work some kind of deal out. And we worked out a deal where I paid them $300 a month, which at the time was a lot of money. We did that for 15 years until we finally came to a settlement with them. We raised the money and came to a settlement with them years later, and it, it, just a big miracle of God. The whole thing was a big miracle of God. So I can relate to this. I can relate to this. I mean, I mean, without God, let me tell you, there's no doubt in my mind what I was facing. I was facing a, 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 a avalanche of legal serious problems, and more than likely I would have gone to prison, but God changed all of and here I am standing in a pulpit today. You talk about an amazing turn of events over the last uh, 30 years. God has really worked a miracle in my life. And that's what he's doing right here with Jacob. And ver look at verse number four. It says, it, it says but Jacob, I mean, but Esau didn't run with a, with, a, with a spear, with a knife to kill him. He ran to meet him and he embraced him and he fell on his neck and he kissed him and they wept together. I mean, Jacob had that same experience. I mean, he's thinking Esau's come to, to kill him, to do him harm, and, 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 and he meets Esau, and Esau runs to him, and he hugs him, and he kisses him, and, and Jacob's weeping. Jacob, at this point, I mean, he's got to be the happiest man on earth. I mean, there's no doubt in my, my mind the angels were watching this, and they were cheering. What an event to see these two brothers being reconciled, hugging and kissing. And I have no doubt at this point that Jacob looks up to heaven and, and uh, he says, thank you, Lord. I truly am Israel. I, surely, I truly am a prince with God. Look what you've done in my life, how you've changed my brother's heart, and now we're having this great reunion. Uh, then in verse number uh, where we lay off. Verse number five. And Esau then lifted up his eyes, and he saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? And so Jacob said, The the children whom these are the children whom God graciously has given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they they and their children and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. So so Esau gets to meet all his little nephews. He gets to meet his sister-in-laws, and they show him all of this great respect. And then in verse number 8, Esau's going to question Jacob because here was Esau, and you remember last week, he was coming towards Jacob with these 400 men, and Jacob sent out these droves of gifts to him in waves, one after the other. And so Esau's going to question, what were you doing there, Jacob, in verse number Verse number 80 says, Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met on the way up here? And he says, I sent all of that to find favor in your sight, my Lord. Now, if he was actually being honest, what he would have said at this point, I sent all of this to keep you from killing me. You know, I thought you were coming to kill me, but, but uh, uh, he's going to tone it down a little bit. And uh, he just says, I, I sent those so to find favor in your sight. Then in verse number 9, but Esau said, look, I have enough, my brother. I don't want this stuff. Keep what you have for, your, for yourself. Now, no doubt at this point, Esau was like the king of Seir, that whole area. And so, so he was a very wealthy man. He had all he wanted, and so he tells, tells Jacob to keep it. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. 
Inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God. See, just like when I looked at that IRS agent and, 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 and I saw this attitude of, of kindness and mercy, uh, I could see the face of God. Jacob looks at his brother Esau, and instead of seeing a warrior coming to kill him, he sees a brother who loves him, he's, and he sees love and mercy and grace. And so he sees in his brother the face of God. And that's that word peniel. I mean, see what had happened. God hadn't deserted Jacob. After Jacob wrestled with God at Peniel, Peniel was going to always be there. The face of God, he was going to see the face of God in all sorts of things the rest of his life. And when you get your identity straight, you're going to see the face of God in a lot of things all your life. If you truly understand who you are in Christ, if you truly understand that, you're going to see the face of God in the face of others. You're going to see the face of God in his providence. You're going to see the face of God in your circumstances. You're going to see the face of God over and over again. You're going to, you wrestle with God, you realize who you are at, at Peniel, and you see the face of God. Somehow, some point in your salvation experience, you see the face of God. Now, I'm talking about necessarily visually, but you see God's face, and then you begin to see your God, God's face throughout your whole life. And so he sees the face of God. He says, I, he says it. When I saw your face, it was though I had seen the face of God that because you were pleased with me, because you weren't there to kill me. And so, uh, then, you know, you don't know exactly what happens at this point, but I have no doubt that, that, that they spent some time together and they began to reminisce. And uh, I'm sure Jacob asked Esau, how are my parents doing? How's Rebecca and Isaac? More than likely, Rebecca was dead at this point. He didn't even know that. Isaac, no doubt, his health had gotten worse, and he was, a, he was an old man probably uh, with some dementia and stuff, and, and, and you know, he was living pretty isolated. I, I think that because Jacob doesn't make an attempt to even go see him until, until after he's dead, and I think if he was still alive, Jacob might would have made some kind of attempt. To, I mean, if he was still alive and well and cognizant, he would have he uh, uh, aware of, his, his surroundings, Jacob would have gone to see him, but we don't get any indication that he did. Then I'm sure that Jacob told uh, Esau about what had happened when he was in Haran and how uh, he had worked for 14 years for his, for his two wives and how he'd had all of these children and then how uh, he had worked for another six years to, 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 and God had blessed him and he had uh, gathered all of these possessions and all of these servants and all of these, this livestock. Then I'm sure Esau told him about what was going on with his children and, and his wives. And, and so they reminisced. And then Esau at this point says, I'm going back to Seir and I want you to go back with me. Now, that should be, you know, the obvious thing. That's probably where his father was. And, and uh, it, it, it was made sense for him to go back. But, but Jacob at this point doesn't fully trust Esau. I don't think he trusts him at all. He knows that he's a, he's a rough man. He knows that he's a man of passions, and his passions change rapidly. And he might get a little bit angry at uh, Jacob, and then all of the past will come back before him, and then he might do harm to Jacob, maybe harm to Jacob's family. So Jacob doesn't trust Esau. And by not trusting Esau, who is he not trusting? He's not really trusting God, because if God had brought him this far, and kept him safe, he was going to keep him safe if he went to Seir with, with Esau. But Jacob doesn't fully trust Esau, and he really doesn't fully trust the Lord. So he's going to begin these delay tactics. He's going to do everything he can to not go back to Seir. So in verse number 11, he says, uh, Please take my blessing that I brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him, and he took it. They did the reminiscing, and then Esau said, uh, let us take our journey and let us go uh, back to Seir and I will go before you and y'all go with us. But Jacob said, now here comes the delay tactic. But Jacob said, my Lord knows that the children are weak and weary and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the man should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. And I don't want my flock to die. So please, y'all go on. Let my Lord go ahead before his servant and I will lead on slowly at a pace 
which the livestock uh, that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to Seir. It'll probably be at least a few weeks behind you, but, but I'll make it to Seir. But here's, who's he acting like here? He's not acting like Israel. He's got his identity of crisis again. He's acting like Jacob. He's, he's, he has, he's a deceiver. He has no intention of going to Seir. He doesn't trust his brother. And so he makes up this excuse, hey, we'll, we'll slow, just slow you down. You go ahead and go, and we'll come on later. later. But now Esau kind of throws a monkey wrench into that whole process here. And Esau said, now let me leave with you. And I think his intentions are good here. But Jacob, I don't think, trusted him. So and Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me, some of these 400 warriors. I'll leave you 30 or 40 warriors to protect you on the way uh, and to watch over you on the way. And, and uh, Jacob isn't going to buy that at all because he's thinking to himself, these guys might be assassins. This might be Esau's plan to kill me, to get me out in the desert somewhere, kill me, take my wife, take all of my cattle, and, and uh, 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 do me harm. And so these guys are strangers. Uh, and so he says, look, Esau, you want to do me a favor? He says, look, we just want to go on alone. We just want to be to ourselves. We want to take our own right. You take your man and you go on. He says, but he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, and you just go on without us and take all of your man with it. And so Esau does that. Verse number 16, so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob, watch what Jacob does. He stays on the east side of the Jordan, and he journeys to Sukkot. Sukkot you're familiar with because it means booths, the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, uh, that's, that's almost irrelevant at this point, but it's just the word for, it was named later on that because Jacob, uh, what Jacob did there, he built himself a house, not a booth, not a Sukkot. He built Sukkot for his cattle, and he made booths or Sukkots for his livestock. So he put, built temporary barns, and he built himself a house. Now, when you build a house, that's usually an indication that you're going to do what? That you're not going anywhere, that you're going to stay there a while. And so, so he's acting like Jacob. He built himself a house, and he made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. So he's got no intention of going to Seir and bringing with his brother. So he, he's going to settle down. He's going to build a house. And he's going to stay there until he thinks he's safe. He's safe from his brother, uh, and uh, then he'll cross over the Jordan and maybe go into the promised land. But he's going to stay on the east side of that Jordan until he feels that he's totally, that Jacob's, uh, that Esau rather is totally out of sight and totally out of mind. Now, when should Jacob had felt? safe. When he built a house and booths on the other side of the Jordan, look, if Esau wanted to kill him still, Esau could have found him there and killed him. He thinks he's hiding down. He thinks he's, you know, in a place where Esau's not going to, you know, Esau's going to forget about him and, and go on with his life, which is probably what happened at that point. But he really wasn't safe unless God made him safe. When should he have felt safe? Let me tell you when he should have felt safe. He should have felt safe when he laid his head on that rock that night in Bethel, the house of God, and he saw angels ascending and descending from heaven, and God said, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. When sh he should have felt safe then, should he? He certainly should have felt safe when he started heading back to the promised land because God said, I'm going to bring you back to the promised land, and I'm going to prosper you. So he should have felt safe then. He should have felt safe when, when Laban was coming after him and he was going to do harm to him more than likely and take back his wives and his children at the very least. And God gave Laban a dream and he said, you better not mess with, with Jacob. And, and, and he should have known at that point that God was protecting him. And then not only that, when Esau really was coming to kill him, God wrestled with him and he gave him this new identity. He gave him this identity of Israel. And he said, 
he said, you're a prince with me now. You're walking with me. He, nothing, there's nothing more, there's no more safety in the world than you can get to be in the presence of God. And so he should have felt safe right then. But he doesn't feel safe. And so he goes and he hides in Sukkot, and he stays there five years before he leaves, and he finally crosses the Jordan, and he goes into the promised land. And where does he head? He heads to the same place that Abraham landed when he first came to the promised land. He went to Shechem, and he lands in Shechem. And, and uh, uh, then look what happens at that point as he goes to Shechem. Then, then Jacob came uh, safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Now, these boys are growing up now. They're all getting older, and that's where we're going to see the events that take place in the next, next chapter. Then Jacob came safely into the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padam Haram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent. And the children of Hamar, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And then, then watch what he does. Here's Jacob, and he's going to realize who he is. He's, you know why he's going to realize who he is? Because everything's going his way at this point. The identity crisis, crises are over. They're not over. He thinks they're over. He's, he's in la-la land at this point. I mean, he's doing well. So he built an altar there, and he called the name of the place are called the altar El Elohi Israel. El Elohi Israel, which means God is the God of Israel. God is the God of Israel. Now, when he's thinking of Israel at this point, he's not thinking of the nation of Israel. Who's he thinking of? He's thinking of himself. He's saying, I'm Israel, and God is my God. So he comes to Shechem, and these Canaanites are glad to see him. I mean, they're thinking to themselves, look at all the prosperity and wealth he's bringing to our city. And so they're happy to see him. And so they sell him a piece of land, a nice piece of land for 100 pieces of silver. And Jacob and his family settle down, and he's at rest. He has no fear of, uh, for his safety. He feels like Esau's out of sight and out of mind. And now he's at peace with the world, and he's at peace with God. And so he understands his identity. A lot of us understand our identity when things are going our way. We're just like Jacob. And he understands his identity, his identity is this, that he is Israel and God is the God of Israel. God is my God. And the story ends. This chapter. He's not done with trials and tribulations. Jacob won't be done with trials and tribulations until he dies. You and I won't be done with trials and tribulations until we die. And because we have trials and tribulations, we're going to end up in the same boat that Jacob was in. And that boat was that he had to face one identity crisis after the other his whole life because God had given him this new identity. You're Israel, prince with God. But he still often reverted back to his old identity, which was Jacob, wheeler, dealer, schemer, heel catcher. And so every time we see him face a crisis after this, he's going to have to face it either as Jacob or he's going to have to face it as Israel. Sometimes he's going to face it like a man of God. Sometimes he's going to face it like a wheeler dealer and a schemer, but he's going to face this crisis over and over and over again because he never really understood his identity. But here's the good news. The fact that Jacob didn't understand his identity doesn't mean that God didn't understand his identity. God saw Jacob always as Israel, as a prince who walked with him, even when he didn't walk 
with him the way he should walk with him. Even in the midst of his bad choices, God saw him as Israel, as a prince with God. And when he breathed his last breath, he was taken to heaven, not as Jacob, wheeler, dealer, and schemer, and hill catcher. He was taken to heaven as Israel, a prince with God. You know, I don't know if there's a more important text, a more text that's so simplistic, so easy to understand, so obvious, and yet so difficult to follow. You know, every born-again believer, every one of us, at some point in time, face an identity crisis. And I think any time our faith is tested through some type of difficult trial, we face an identity crisis. I mean... Are we going to live by our old identity, which is defined by our fallen nature? Are we going to live by our new identity that we have in Christ? What is the the new identity that we have in Christ? We are Israel. We have prevailed with God. You know how we've prevailed with God? Because we've let God prevail in our life. God prevailed in our life on the cross. God died for us, and he paid for all our sins. And we won that victory when Christ won that victory. So we prevailed with God, and now we can walk with God, and that is our identity. We are princes and princesses walking with God. That's who we are. Now, I can tell you that, and how many of you believe that? You all believe that. But I can can observe our lives, and we don't walk like that. Because we face this identity crisis. I mean, who are we? I mean, John puts it like this in John chapter 1, verse 12. He says, to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become sons and daughters of God. That's who you are. In 1 John 3, 1, John says, Behold, what manner of love has the Father bestowed upon us, that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Paul puts it like this. He, gives a, he, he, he explains what it means to be a son and daughter of God. In, 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 in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things, all the old things have passed away. Everything's become new if we're in Christ. But here's our problem. Both Most of us don't embrace our new identity. We don't really understand. We we live like we don't really understand who we really are. Being a Christian is something, you know, it's part of our life, but it doesn't define our life. In the movie Overcomer, the main character in that movie is a guy named John Harrison who's played by Alex Kendrick. And he has this new friend who asks him a question. He says, he says uh, tell me more about yourself. Who are you? Who are you? Tell me who you are. And uh, Harrison answers the question. He says, well, I'm a basketball coach, and, and I'm a teacher. That's who I am. He said, is that all you are? I mean, aren't you more than that? He says, yeah. I'm a, he says, I'm a father, and I'm a husband. He's trying to be spiritual there. And he says, well, aren't you more than that? He says, well, I don't know what you're digging at. He says, I guess I could say I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Where, where should that have been in the order of things? It really should have been first. And, and if I were to ask you today, who are you? And, 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 and you hadn't, we hadn't played this little game or hadn't given you that illustration before I asked you that. Some of you would say, some of you, I can look around the room, some of you would say, oh, I'm, a, I'm a coach. I might say I'm a pastor. Somebody might say I'm a nurse. Somebody might say I'm an accountant. Somebody might say I'm a, I'm, I'm a stay-at-home mom. 
I'm a, I'm a truck driver, I'm a, you know, that's how we define ourselves. A lot of, that's the way a lot of our uh, define ourselves. And, and very few of us, honestly, would answer that question right away, hey, I'm in Christ. I'm a child of God. That's how I define myself. I'm Israel. I'm a prince or princess with God. That's not how we define ourselves normally, but that really should be the way we define ourselves. But see, here's our problem. Most of us are so much into this world, and, and, and I get it because we're in this world, uh, but we're not supposed to be of this world, but we're into this world so much that we let the world define who we are, and we want to be defined in the world in a way that's pleasing in the sight of the world. That's a real danger in that. We begin to make that our priority over defining ourselves as being a child of God, and we're going to be in trouble. That's why Paul had to constantly remind the believers at the various churches of who they were in Christ. I mean, it seems obvious, but they had to constantly be reminded of that. Remember, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he had to remind the Corinthians. I mean, these guys were, they had forgotten totally who they were. He said, listen, you're not fornicators. You're not idolaters. You're not adulterers. You're not homosexuals. You're not sodomites. You're not thieves. You're not covetous. You're not drunkards. You're not revilers nor extortioners because if you are, you wouldn't inherit the kingdom of God, and you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. So that's not who you are. Paul says, let me tell you who you are. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been made a saint, a child of God, a prince with God. You've been made Israel because you've been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of the Lord our God. And listen, until we get that down and we prioritize that identity, we're not going to have any victory in our Christian walk. We've got to realize that we're not those old things anymore. Those old things that beset us by faith, you've got to say, that's not me anymore. I'm not going to act like that anymore. I'm a saint of God. I'm going to walk like a saint of God. And, and so when we face some kind of trial, we don't have an identity crisis. We say to ourselves, I am holy. I've been set Apart by God. That's who I am. I am a believer in Christ. And you've got to really believe that. Now that sounds, again, simplistic. Simplistic. But it's, but it's, but it's not. It's very complicated. It's very hard to do that. Because, again, we let the world define us. But, see, when we really get to that point, that's when we start having victory. We, 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 we recognize who we are. So when we're faced with an enemy... We, we realize that, hey, if God be for us, who can be against us? We're more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. That's who I am. I'm not a loser. I'm not going to be beaten down by my enemies. I'm going to have victory in this situation. When we're faced with some temptation, we don't yield and fall when that temptation comes. What we do, we recognize who we are in Christ, that we are children of God. And by, by, by the Spirit of God, we put to death the deeds of the Spirit. And it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I have the power over sin. And I believe that. And, 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 and I'll tell you what we face in this world more than anything else, or as much as anything else, there are all these lies of the Antichrist. The Antichrist are in this world. I mean, they permeate our political system, our educational system, our media. It's just full of lies. And, 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 and it shows itself in things like moral relativity, in, in uh, evolution. All of that is a lie. It's a big lie. It's a big lie to push God out of society. That's what it's all about. But the Bible says, I'm a child of God, and I'm, a, I'm an elect child of God, and it's impossible impossible to deceive the elect. When somebody tells me they're a Christian and they believe in evolution, I question whether or not they're elect. 
Because you are deceived if you believe in evolution. And it is impossible to deceive the elect. Totally impossible. And even when we face death, if we've got our identity straight, we can face it in victory and say to death, stare it in the face and say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Because Jesus Christ has said to me, whoever believes in him, though he die, he shall keep right on living. So, when we embrace our new identity, when we prioritize our new identity in Christ, that we're new creations. All the old things have passed away. When we do that, then we begin to have victory. But the story doesn't end there. Because I'm going to tell you, the rest of your life, you're going to face one trial after the other. You're going to come out of a trial, you're going to go back into a trial. Some of them are going to be major trials. And when those trials come, you're going to have to decide who you are. Am I the old George, or am I going to face this as the new George? Am I the old creation, or am I the new creation? And there's going to be times when you're not going to make it, you're going to face it as the old creation. But here's the good news. Even when you falter and fail, God doesn't quit seeing you as the new creation. He doesn't quit seeing you as Israel, a prince or princess with God. And one day he's going to bring you home, if you're a child of God, he's going to bring you home as glory, to glory, not as the old person, but as a new person in Christ, as Israel, a prince or princess, with God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness to us that you, you would bestow upon us the title of children of God. Lord, not just the title, but you would make us your children. Father, how blessed we are. Lord, help us. Help us to prioritize that identity in our life. Help us to take these identities that the world places upon us, the identities that we place upon ourselves and Toss those aside, Lord, and, and, and see ourselves as Israel, as people who are walking with you, and Lord, walking with you not in defeat, but in victory. But we can only do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. We can only do that as we place our focus on you, and we give our lives to you, Lord, and we just thank you that you, you love us so much. Lord, we thank you for all the grace and mercy you've shown all of us, and we know you're going to continue to do that, and we thank you for that through the blood of Christ, I pray. Amen.